The Coats and Children's Library at Princeton University Library presents The Bibliophiles. Hi, this is Dr. Dana. My guest is Trenton Lee Stewart, author of the Mysterious Benedict Society series. When the words, are you a gifted child looking for special opportunities, appears in an advertisement in the local paper, orphan Rennie Muldoon is intrigued. While Rennie might look like an average 11-year-old, his mind is definitely anything but average. The advertisement leads Rennie to a baffling series of unusual tests and even more unusual children. Sticky Washington, a nervous, bespectacled quiz show champion with an astounding photographic memory, Kate Weatherall, an effusive athletic prodigy armed with a red bucket, and Constance Contraire, a grumpy, willful girl with a knack for creating insulting poetry and a notorious need for naps. The children soon learn about a nefarious, top-secret world headquartered in their very own town, headed by Le Drop the Curtain, an evil genius, and protected by an elite set of deadly, though oddly charming, henchmen called the Ten Men. Over the course of the three books, the children travel around the globe and navigate through the underworld of their hometown to undo Mr. Curtin's terrible plans for world domination through an ominous machine called the Whisperer. It's difficult to say which is more enjoyable in this series, the action or the camaraderie. The amazing riddles, puzzles, twists, turns, pursuits, narrow escapes, and brushes with danger make this book unlike any other. But the relationship between Rennie, Sticky, Kate, and Constance as they use their separate talents, strengths, and weaknesses to work as a team is incredible and goes to show that you don't need superpowers to be a true hero. You just need to be true to your friends and true to yourself. The Mysterious Benedict Society and The Mysterious Benedict Society and The Prisoner's Dilemma were both New York Times bestsellers. The first book in the series won the E.B. White Read Aloud Award and was listed as an ALA notable book. The paperback version of the third book is due out this month, as is the box set of all three books. Trenton Lee Stort joins us from Arkansas. Mr. Stort, welcome to The Bibliophiles. Thank you. Something unusual happened to me when I finished the first book in the series. I started wondering exactly who you were. Usually the bio in the back is enough to satisfy my curiosity, but not this time. I had a million questions about you. Who is this person? How did he create these puzzles? Was he like any of these kids when he was growing up? Is he a genius? Rather than ask you intense personal questions about yourself, however, may I instead ask what pieces of your past you brought to the creation of this book? Sure. Um, well, I was for several years a child. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I did include children in the book as the heroes. Beyond that, not a lot. Certainly, uh, a love of books, I think, comes out in all these books. There are books everywhere, um, and libraries are mentioned in all three of these books. I've always loved books, um, always loved libraries, which seem to me to be treasures. But beyond that, not a lot. I mean, certainly, uh, I, I identify with some of the children, certain aspects of their characters I identify with. Randy, for example, is he's a very curious kid with um, a sense of humor, and I, I think I was similar in that way, but I was not as clever as Randy, and I didn't have any of the gifts that um, that the children have really. I had a good memory, but nothing like stickies, and uh, I wanted to be acrobatic like Kate, but I wasn't acrobatic like Kate. So if I brought anything, really, it was probably a lot of wishful thinking. <laughs> 
I've read plenty of espionage books, books about puzzles and books about kids working together as a team against the bad guys. But there is something about your books that makes them different from all of the others. Has anyone ever expressed this to you? Similar things have been expressed to me. I think one of the things that gets that has attention called to it a lot is the absence of the usual sorts of spy gadgetry you see in, in books of espionage these days, which, which was intentional on my part. There's Certainly there's The Whisperer, which is a sort of science fiction-influenced device, and Mr. Curtin's henchmen, the Ten Men or the Recruiters, as they're called in the first book. They have weapons that are sort of out of a James Bond, an old James Bond film, maybe. Um, but for the most part, the kids don't use radios or computers or anything like that when they, they go on their mission. And uh, a lot of that was because I'm lazy and didn't want to research sophisticated spy technology. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but mostly, it was a tip of the hat from me to the books that I loved when I was young. And the books that I read back in the late 70s, early 80s, that were like this book in the sense that they were adventures of some sort or whatever, they, they were already kind of old books themselves. Had they been around a while? So there, I think I was influenced by old-fashioned books. And so I think my book has a sort of old-fashioned feel in some ways. Can you name a few of those old books that you read? Sure. Well, the ones that stayed with me and, and made me want to write a similar sort of book um, years later were they were all big adventures with sort of mysterious elements and small odds or against them sorts of heroes. So certainly the Chronicles of Narnia, starting with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, kids going into a strange place and having to remember important information and seek out solutions to things as they went on a quest in a strange land. And then uh, The Hobbit, for sure, I read several times as a kid. So there we have a, a small main character, a small hero, again, going on a, a quest in unknown lands, and um, the odds are against his success. Um, so The Hobbit and The Chronicles of Narnia, um, Watership Down, Mrs. Frisbee and the Wrath of Men. And uh, I guess less so, uh, I, it, I, I often forget to mention these, but of course, the books that I've written I owe some debt to the Encyclopedia Brown books. Oh, which, yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you have some characters that have similarities to my characters, um, only their talents have been redistributed. And, and in the Encyclopedia Brown books, at least in my experience, they were always sort of like comic strips. Nobody ever changed. Mm-hmm. And all the situation was always the same, story to story. And, and I was trying to write a fully fleshed out adventure, yes, but a story about real characters who do change and grow and so on. So... Certainly, I was very much drawn to the encyclopedia books, and it had some influence, but I was trying to write something different with the Mysterious Benedict Society books, too. Did you ever read anything by John Belairs? He wrote The House with the Clock in His Walls and The Curse of the Blue Figurine. I haven't, though um, I heard mention of him since I wrote these books, which is, which is true of a number of books I wasn't familiar with, uh, especially in the context of telling me that I was clearly influenced by certain books. Uh, and <laughs> I would have to privately laugh knowing that I hadn't read those books, like The Westing Game and From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, and those and a few others that I've read since I wrote these books, but uh, I was unfortunate enough not to be familiar with them when I was a kid. I'm wondering if you might be willing to read a passage that demonstrates how the different characters in your book solve a puzzle with their various kinds of smarts. I would be glad to. I'll introduce this passage by saying that Rennie has already undergone a series of tests 
that morning and now finds himself continuing to be tested, but he's joined by other children who successfully finished the other test sessions. So here they are once again confronted by another test. And the only other thing I will add is that Milligan is the adult who is leading them through portions of these tests. Soon Milligan came back and announced that it was Rennie's turn. He gave no hint about what had happened to Sticky. See you on the other side, said Kate, wherever that is. Rennie took a deep breath and went in, the door closing behind him. He found himself in an empty room. On the opposite wall, above another closed door, hung a large sign that read, Cross the room without setting foot on a blue or black square. Rennie looked down. On the cement floor, just inside the door where he now stood, was a large red circle. On the other side of the room, by the opposite door, was another red circle. Between these circles, the floor resembled a giant checkerboard with alternating rectangles of blue, black, and yellow. Rennie studied the pattern. There was far more blue and black than yellow. So much more, in fact, that he soon realized it would be impossible to cross the room without stepping on blue or black. The yellow parts were so widely scattered that he doubted even a kangaroo could hop from one to the other. He looked at the sign again, and after a moment's consideration, he laughed and shook his head. Then he strode confidently across the room into the other red circle and out the far door. Sticky and Milligan stood waiting for him beyond the door. They had been watching him secretly through tiny holes in the wall. Sticky looked confused and started to ask Rennie something, but Milligan shushed him. You boys can watch, but you must be quiet, he said. He went away to tell Kate it was her turn. Moments later, they saw Kate step boldly into room 7B. After reading the sign, she studied the floor, considering whether she might manage to leap from yellow to yellow. At last, she shook her head, rejecting the idea. Next, she looked from one door to the other, gauging the distance. Then, taking the length of rope from her bucket, she fashioned a loop at the end, and with one expert throw, lassoed the doorknob at the far side of the room. Fastening the other end to the doorknob behind her, she pulled the rope tight, knotted it securely, and climbed up. Now, if I only had that paddle, she said aloud to herself as she walked along the rope, I could hold it out in front of me for balance. Indeed, a paddle might have helped, for halfway across the room she nearly fell. The boys caught their breath. But after wobbling back and forth and wheeling her arms around, she recovered. After a few more careful steps, she hopped down into the other red circle. Wow, Sticky whispered. She did it. But before Kate could join the boys, Milligan appeared and took her back to the starting point to try again, this time without her rope, which he informed her would be returned upon completion of the test. That's hardly fair, Sticky whispered. Nobody told her she couldn't use a rope. Kate, meanwhile, was removing all the items from her bucket and stuffing them into her pockets. When she'd finished, her pockets bulging ridiculously, she unscrewed the handle from her bucket and tucked it through her belt. Then she was ready. Kicking the bucket onto its side, she hopped onto it and began rolling it forward with her feet, like a circus bear balancing on a ball. Rolling first this way and then that, she zigzagged across the room to the other red circle. Rennie and Sticky looked at each other in awe. Who was this girl? Yet once again, as Kate reattached the bucket handle and emptied her pockets, Milligan entered the room. He returned her to the starting circle, this time taking away her bucket and tools, which she handed over with evident reluctance. She recovered quickly, however. Before Milligan had even closed the door behind him, Kate shrugged and cracked her knuckles, 
flattened her palms against the cement and lifted her feet into the air above her. And this was how she crossed the room, walking on her hands, not once setting foot upon the floor. Never mind, said Milligan when she opened the door. He handed her bucket back. You pass. What I don't understand, Sticky was saying to Rennie as they followed Milligan down a dark stairway, is how you passed that test. I'm glad, of course, but I don't see how you did it. I crossed on my hands and knees so my feet didn't touch any blue or black squares, and Kate did her acrobat tricks, but you just walked right across the room. You were stepping on dark squares left and right. They had reached the bottom of the stairs now. Milligan ushered the children into a damp, dimly lit underground passage where centipedes twisted away at their approach and other slithery creatures they heard but didn't see retreated into the shadows. By this gloomy route, he was leading them to what he had called their final testing place, which struck Rennie as having a particularly ominous sound. Just walked right across, said Kate. Rennie, how did you get away with that? It was another trick. Those weren't squares on the floor. They were rectangles. Their sides weren't all the same length. Gosh, that's true, Kate reflected. Sticky slapped his forehead. I got my pants dirty for nothing. I crawled across the floor like a baby for nothing. I'm so stupid. I can't believe they're letting me go on. You're hardly stupid, Lenny said. You're here, aren't you? <laughs> Thank you. Was it hard to come up with all the different puzzles? Uh, yes and no. Some of them were hard, were hard for me. Um, many of them came with me to the project itself. I mean, I had ideas for puzzles and riddles and so on that I wasn't putting to any practical use. They were just floating around in my brain. And it was some of these that got me interested in maybe putting together into a, a, a children's adventure book of this type. So those were really just the product of a daydreaming mind that is inclined to think about constructing mazes with secrets to them and so on instead of being more productive. But then after I had packed all those things into the book, I, I needed more. So then I had to apply myself um, <laughs> <and> I, <sort> of <laughs> and actually think about the way that riddles work, which is what interests me most, riddles and visual riddles as opposed to actual codes and problem solving. A lot of it came instinctively to me, but once I had to come up with new ones, on demand for the story, then I really needed to pay attention to their structure and uh, the way they deliver their impact and so on. So that requires some more work. And I, of course, in this book and in, in the subsequent books, I have lots of things that I tried to make work and didn't work and I had to discard them. But some things just, once I started thinking what the situation need, needed, they just sort of swam up to the surface and uh, seemed to fit. I just want to point out to our listeners that daydreaming is productive, see? <laughs> That's right. Sticky even says as much in the third book, I guess. I hadn't thought about it till just now, but uh, he was making uh, a an aggressive defense for people like his creator. I mean, he, he makes some comment about the salubrious effects of daydreaming on mental health. <laughs> I'm wondering which child you get asked about the most. I get asked about all of them a lot. I suppose I probably get asked most about Constance and Kate, maybe because Sticky and Rennie seem to sort of occupy the middle in terms of personalities. Sticky's very timid, but by that same virtue, he's not 
grabbing the reader's attention and, and shaking the reader by the lapels. And, and really, he's a very middle-of-the-road kind of He's got a good sense of humor, and he's, he's somewhat mild-mannered and friendly and so on. Whereas Constance is, is extreme in her stubbornness and her crankiness, and, and Kate is extreme in her exuberance and her very obvious attention-grabbing red bucket strapped to her hip. Um, <laughs> so maybe that. That might be the reason. I, I, again, I do get asked about all of them. A lot of kids seem to identify very specifically with different characters, and they will usually tell me so if they feel like they're most like Sticky or Rennie or Kate or Constance. And Constance less so than the others. I think fewer people are eager to align themselves or connect themselves in some way with the very cranky, stubborn character, but many people still do, being honest, I guess. And, and I think Kate, at least if it's evidenced by the letters that I receive on, and um, the buckets that I see at readings sometimes. She really inspires some fierce loyalty. I think a lot of girls really feel like they associate with Kate. So I've been sent photographs of girls with their bucket and their striped shirts and their ponytails, and I, I've been told um, about a lot of similar costumes, and certainly a number of girls have shown up at readings dressed as Kate. So that, that, that's been obviously a lot of fun for me to see. Do they have anything in their buckets? Several of them have meticulously assembled all the things that Kate has, though some haven't been able to, and sometimes they just have um, mock instruments. So instead of an actual really powerful magnet, they have they have a horseshoe magnet, but it's sort of a toy magnet and that sort of thing. A lot of times they're not full size. They're, they're small flashlights instead of full-size flashlights and so on. But no one ever said that Kate's bucket was entirely practical and reproducible in the real world. <laughs> sort of like Oscar the Grouch's trash can. He manages to put a bunch of things in there that might not actually fit in real life. <laughs> I'd like to ask you about the bad guys. Mr. Curtin is an evil genius out to do harm to humanity, but a lot of his dirty work is done by an elite set of guards. In the first book, they're called The Recruiters. In the next two books, they're called The Ten Men. Could you describe them and tell us how you invented them? Sure. They are very uh, elegantly dressed, smiling men. They wear expensive, strong cologne, probably too much of it, but they make the impression upon somebody of being genial, friendly, successful, elegant people who are warm and welcoming. But the, the fact is that they work for Mr. Curtin, and in the first book, their, their main job is to abduct children against their will and take them to Mr. Curtin's institute. And in the, in the second and third, they, they perform various forms. So, they, so that's how they look. And in the second and third books, they, they carry briefcases that they would blend in in a crowd of successful, well-dressed businessmen and not be pulled aside for carrying large weaponry on the street or whatever. But inside their briefcases, they have lots of business supplies and notebooks and clipboards and that sort of thing that, that wouldn't seem too out of keeping with something that a businessman might carry about with him in his briefcase, but all of them are capable of doing harm. They're all capable of being used as weapons from staple removers to their neckties, which is how they get the nickname, the 10 men there. They have, they supposedly have 10 different ways of hurting you. How did I come up with them, you asked me, I guess. I, uh, it started as a joke. I, <laughs> I had a, a lot of jokes in my first book and I made fun of just in, anything that came to hand, so everything from the media to certain kinds of education, you name it. And um, so at this institute that Mr. Curtin runs as a sort of front for an evil operation, 
he needs children. And so in real life, there are people called recruiters who will go out and, and try to get commitments from top students to come to their particular institutes. And they wouldn't be the sort who would be friendly, gregarious, welcoming sorts of people. And I just made a play on that and called these men recruiters, though, instead of actually sort of gently uh, urging people to come to their institute, in the end, they shoot out little wires that shock you from their watches and, and knock you unconscious and stuff you in a bag. But so how did it start? So uh, it started as that sort of joke. I, I, need, I wanted there to be some menacing types that, that the kids would have to confront. And so that's how the recruiters were born. And at the end of the first book, it's noted that they mostly managed to escape. So it made sense then. There was no longer an institute in the second and third book. And so they, their duties and their names shift away from recruiters to just 10 men. Mr. Benedict, the children's benevolent benefactor, has a guard named Milligan, and it's often Milligan who fights the Ten Men. Can you tell us about Milligan? And I should add that this question is in no way biased because he's one of my favorite characters. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you like him. I'm really fond of Milligan myself. He, in the first book, appears to the children before they ever meet Mr. Benedict uh, in conjunction with these tests as you mentioned earlier. And what they notice most about him is that he's very sad, and he won't explain why, and he won't give his full name. He says his name is Milligan, and that's all. Uh, Over the course of the book, you learn why he's so sad, and it actually ends up mattering in in the plot, the mystery that must be solved by these kids about what's going on at the Institute. But he is like a super spy. He is an unbelievably talented guard, for Mr. Benedict and a sort of secret operative for Mr. Benedict and serves as a bodyguard for the children in certain key situations. So he's incredibly fast. He's incredibly handy with his weapon of choice, which is a tranquilizer gun, a huge tranquilizer darts. But his background is a bit of a mis- is a mystery in the first book. And then his origins come to light uh, over the course of the series. Yeah, I guess Milligan you know, has all the answers. That's why I like him so much. Well, he, you know, it certainly would be great to have those skills, but you know, it's, it's, it's worth remembering that he fails at key moments in almost all the books, and the kids have to turn around and save him back. So he, he manages to save them, but usually only at great expense to his um, physical well-being. So he's not so perfect that he can take care of the kids in all circumstances without um, suffering some sort of harm. Right. I think the thing I like about these books, too, is that nobody is perfect. It's, you need to rely on each other. And you don't see that often. You see these really smart kids who can handle anything. This is much more realistic, but it's not realistic in a way that's dull. <laughs> if that's, a, <laughs> that's a good way of describing it. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I, yeah, I tend to find uh, characters who lack vulnerability dull. Like, for instance, as a kid, I much preferred Spider-Man to Superman, namely because he... Well, not just namely, but at least in one respect, it was because he he had lots of vulnerabilities. He seemed like a normal person, as you're saying, and, and Superman seemed capable of doing anything, and he didn't seem very vulnerable much of the time. So unless somebody happened to show up with a piece of kryptonite, you didn't really worry about whether or not he was going to be okay. And I am much more interested in, in characters who at any moment could drop the ball and and have something bad happen to them because they made a mistake or because they aren't perfect. And certainly I wanted the adults. The adults really needed to be highly gifted and skilled in what they did. 
also definitely flawed and vulnerable because I wanted these books to be about children who solve all the big problems. So it's good to have adults there for a variety of reasons, but in, at, at the end of the day, it's the kids who more often than not have to save the day and, and not the adults. I didn't want the adults to step in and tidy everything up. The paperback version of the third book, The Mysterious Benedict Society and the Prisoner's Dilemma, is due out this month, as is the box set for all three books. My question is, does the box set come in a red bucket? <laughs> <laughs> it should, but... Um, Maybe there was some sort of stumbling block in marketing and production when it came to packaging books in a bucket. But um, my understanding is that is not how they intend to proceed. <laughs> you can put the box set in your bucket. Terry. Why shouldn't you? <laughs> That's yet another purpose a bucket can serve. <laughs> Trenton Lee Stort, thank you for coming on The Bibliophiles. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.